0: On the night in which our Lord was betrayed, He first wanted to remember the Passover with His disciples, and so He asked them uh, to meet Him, and they celebrated the Passover. You remember during that celebration, there was some distraction as He was talking about His kingdom, His disciples were arguing among themselves as to which one was the greatest He got up from the supper and stripped for work and actually got down and washed the disciples' feet. But then with uh, just a short time before he would go out to uh, the Olivet area in order to uh, be betrayed and arrested and tried, uh, he had a few minutes in order to teach His disciples some of the most important aspects of their relationship with Him. And I'd like to take us through John chapter 15 uh, this morning and this evening, the teaching that Jesus has uh, first regarding His relationship to us as believers and our response to the way in which He wants to develop us. He gives for us in this section. A parable like uh, description of how we ought to relate to him. I'm reading from John 15, verse 1, and these are the words of Jesus I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It sounds strange uh, to us to hear him uh, using the imagery of a vine and branches. Uh, Most of us don't have much experience in growing grapes. Uh, Much of this area where uh, we live uh, was once uh, citrus groves, oranges, uh, lemons, grapefruits. The vineyards were a little uh, further east, but you may remember uh, the vineyards that were out that way. Uh, Vineyards were common in the nation of Israel. And God actually used their experience in growing grapes to explain His relationship to us. In Isaiah 5, in the first seven verses, you hear God Himself describing Him as the farmer who cares for the vine and how Israel is to be that vine. Isaiah 5 verse 1 says, now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst, and he also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes." And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I've not done it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned. And break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. And he looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. In Isaiah's prophecies, announcing the judgment of the Lord. You know, the two southern tribes were led away into Babylonian captivity, and the Assyrians took uh, control of the land of the ten northern tribes. So, if Jesus teaching his disciples, who were Jews, about a vine dresser in a vineyard, the Old Testament scriptures would come to mind. And they'd be reminded of the disappointment that God had in them, that they had not been developed well, that they should have responded to the quality of his husbandry, and yet they were not responsive. And so what you see in the opening of John 15 that he describes two kinds of vines, two kinds of branches, a branch that does not bear fruit that he needs to take away and a branch that does bear fruit that he prunes, so that it will bear more fruit. In this way, he's asking the disciples to ask themselves, which kind of disciple will I be? The one that needs to be cut off and thrown away, or the one that needs to be pruned so that it may bear more fruit? I grew up in Upland, not far from here. We lived on Euclid Avenue in an old 1910 house that had originally been owned by the owner of the groves around it. By the time we came along, it had been sold off. Uh, the groves were gone right near our house and there was all uh, homes built in around our old house. We had some orange trees uh, in our yard as well. There was one in the front yard that was smaller than the others. It looked like it had been cut back at one point and it regrew much like the description of a wild plant that grows wild grapes. Though the fruit on this tree was beautiful, uh, brilliant orange, well-shaped, when you opened it, the skin was twice as thick as it should be. The fruit was half the size it should be. The fruit was a bitter sour and it had way, way too many seeds. We just played softball with those oranges. We didn't uh, eat them at all. What had happened, apparently, is that they had used the wild roots of the wild orange trees in order to have a strength against disease and then would graft in cultivated branches so that they would grow uh, the proper cultivated fruit that we enjoy and that we eat regularly. You can sense here uh, that we have to allow the Lord to work with us in order for us to bring the fruit from us uh, that he wishes. And so, as he describes us who are willing to cooperate with him, uh, he describes us as needing to be pruned so as to grow more fruit. This means we need to be redirected so that all of our energy goes in the direction that he chooses rather than our own. When we bought our first house in Dubuque, Iowa, when we were going to Emmaus Bible College, uh, we inherited 21 rose bushes all surrounding the house. Carol was thrilled. Uh, She loves roses, her favorite flower perhaps. And so I was able to cut her a dew-filled rose every morning and bring it to her in the bathroom as she was getting ready for the day. And that became a habit to where she she wanted a rose every day. Since she was so pleased, I started trying to figure out how to cultivate these roses. California is much kinder to roses than Iowa is. Iowa has winters below zero, and so you have to First you have to cut back the plants, pack them with leaves, and you use a styrofoam cone with a brick on top in order to build enough insulation around them so that the whole root does not freeze. Uh, As the plant is growing in the spring, I thought anything green meant good, and I let them grow in any direction they wanted, and they produced an abundance of roses, but very small roses, and not with long stems at all. I also noticed that uh, we were beginning to have uh, problems with disease. Among the insects that I fought were aphids, mites, leaf-cutting bees, Japanese beetles. We also had diseases such as black spot, mildew, mold, and I was at a loss. So I called up the folks at the local arboretum, which were very kind. They knew roses very well, and it seemed as if their whole life was taking care of flowers. And so they described to me in great detail what I needed to do. One of the problems in Iowa was it rains every third day. And so the leaves get wet, and the leaves attract such things as mold and mildew. They suggested after each rain, I should go out and dry off every leaf. They also said the spray that I was going to be putting on the leaves would get washed away by the rain, so I I should re-spray them and began to seem overwhelmingly cumbersome to say, how much care do I give to 21 bushes? But the pleasure it brought my wife caused me to want to learn how to cultivate roses. You can, if you're willing to sacrifice certain branches by cutting them off, direct the energy of the plant towards a central branch that goes up tall and it produces a long stem rose and a huge, beautiful rose. And It taught me a lot about what this passage is describing in which we tend to go off on our own directions thinking anything green is good and assuming that God will be pleased with whatever we choose to do. Not so. God has his plan as to what he would have us do. In this room is Peter, who is promising that he will never deny the Lord. In fact, he'll bring his sword to the garden that night and will fight off any attack. And he's the one who ends up denying our Lord three times. He gives up and thinks he might as well go back to fishing. But the Lord hunts him down, redirects him, and says, you know, other people can fish. You are to be a shepherd to my sheep. You're to tend my lambs. And this is the kind of thing the Lord does with us, in which He redirects us the way He wants us to go. And what we should remember is we are the vine, or He is the vine, excuse me. We are the branches, and that He has every right to tell us how He would like us to grow and what He would like us to do. And though we may not want to be pruned, though we may not want to be redirected, pruning is actually good for us. And pruning is good for Him to develop us the way that He wants to develop us. Look again at John 15:1. I am the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me And we must realize that Paul is not even a saved individual here yet, and his terminology of being in Christ has not even developed yet. So this is not Paul's in Christ description. This is Jesus speaking of people who are related to him as disciples. Every branch in me that does not bear a fruit, he takes away. And so there are some who would be followers of Jesus Christ who will bear no fruit and necessarily must be taken away. Every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. In our interest to try to figure out whom is he talking about as to which disciples are the ones that don't bear more, any fruit at all and which need to be pruned, he explains it contextually exactly what he means. The word translated prune in verse two there is the noun, uh, he prunes, this the verb form of the noun, you are already clean, in John 13, 10, in which he's describing who needs to have his feet washed or have his whole body washed. Back in John 13, in the foot washing scene, first of all, Peter refuses to have him wash his feet at all, then Jesus says, you can have no part of me unless I wash your feet. So Peter says, then wash all of me, and Jesus says, no you're already clean. In other words, you're already forgiven of your sins. All you need is a foot washing to get the dust off your feet. It means in a sense for our understanding of 1 John 1, 9 kind of, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a family level forgiveness of restoration towards the family relationship we have with him within the body of Christ. Notice John 15.3 says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. That means he's referencing back two chapters earlier when he described the difference between Judas that he described as not clean because he was about to betray him and the other 11 that he describes as clean. And so in this context, in verse 3, he is telling us the one who's being taken away is Judas. The other 11 of you need to be pruned. And so his exhortation for us is to abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He's saying that every person who professes to be my disciple is not necessarily a true follower, Judas. And he's describing in order to have the fruit that he desires from us, it's going to require loving obedience. The reason I describe it as loving is later in the chapter, he describes that This obedience is not burdensome. This obedience is based on a love relationship with him. Yes, it will require righteousness, meaning it will require close following of him in an obedient manner, and it will also require acts of justice, as he is regularly described as a problem with the nation of Israel. He wants us to be a true follower of him, not one that is cut off, And so he says, fruitfulness of your life is going to come from me, not yourself. The empowerment that you have in order to bear righteous fruit, God-honoring fruit, is not going to come from within yourself. It's going to come from my life being reproduced in you. He says, you can't go rogue, you can't operate independently, you must remain in me, abide in me, he says, and I in you, otherwise you will not bear fruit, you cannot unless you abide in me. That house I grew up in in Upland was a huge house, probably 4,000 square feet, we had seven kids plus my parents, nine of us in that house, and I used to watch my mother vacuum the house. And at age nine, things are interesting at age nine, I, I thought, that looks like fun. And I said to my mother, can you teach me to vacuum? What happened then is she taught me and I vacuumed that house, all 4,000 square feet every Saturday till I was 18 and went away to college. One of the interesting things about a vacuum is it doesn't seem like the designers give it a long enough electrical cord because it seems they taunt you that with, within three feet of the wall, the cord runs out. And you're just saying to yourself, like, if I just had a little more cord, I wouldn't have to move. But you constantly have to go back to the wall, unplug it, go hunting for another plug closer, plug it back in, and then continue vacuuming. It seems frustrating, but it taught me a huge lesson. The vacuum cleaner doesn't work unless it's plugged in. And for us as believers, when we go rogue, when we go independent, when we get our own ideas, when we say, I'll serve the Lord the way I want to serve the Lord, we are not bearing fruit the way he wants us to bear fruit. And it would be as if our fruit is counterfeit, much like that orange tree in my front yard that had a wild root and no cultivated branches left and just produced useless fruit. We would produce fruit that we might show off to other people and say, look how beautiful this fruit is, but it's not pleasing to the Lord. And so we have to then submit to Him our hearts, our desires, our will. And say to him, how would you like me to serve you? How can I best please you? Listen to him in verse 5. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. In other words, the productivity and success of the Christian life is promised if we are abiding in him and he in us. For without me, you can do nothing. And that's a phrase of a verse that we ought to memorize and repeat to ourselves often when we say, I'm at the end of my strength, I'm at the end of my wits, I'm at the end of my ability to handle life at all, I am frustrated, I'm depressed, I'm angry. Keep saying to yourself, without me, speaking from Jesus, you can do nothing. And say to yourself, the next time you're overwhelmed or depressed or frustrated or angry, say to yourself, I am not receiving nourishment from the vine right now. I need the flow of nourishment in order to live. My wife, as she was being born, had the cord, the umbilical cord, wrapped around her neck several times. And there was a danger uh, that she was about to be strangled, in a sense, during the birth process. But praise God, uh, He rescued her. But it reminds you again, just like the umbilical cord needing to have free flow, that we have to have a steady flow of nutrients, in a sense, from Jesus Christ Himself. As we cooperate with him by abiding in him, meaning that we're letting his ministry, his life, pour into us, unimpeded, so that we can serve others. You ever read those passages where it tells us to love the unlovely, it tells us to love those who hate you, and you say, like, that's impossible. There's no way any of us could do that. Yes, humanly speaking, it is impossible. Humanly speaking, we would not do that. Humanly speaking, we'd say, I reject that whole thought. But you saw Jesus loving people. We were talking just in the last hour about him on the cross. Do you remember he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? As a young person, I was reading that. I was saying, like, don't say that. They don't deserve to be forgiven. Don't forgive people like that. That's wrong of me, isn't it? Who am I to deny Jesus's ability to forgive a person? Or think of the centurion, who after it was all over said, truly this was the Son of God. You sense that God can work through even seeming tragedy to accomplish his purpose. In fact, it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to die in order for the Father, through his payment on our behalf, to forgive us of our sins. It's necessary, therefore, for us to be lovingly obedient, persevere in believing, abiding in Him, happily receiving pruning, meaning parts are cut off, rest is redirected so the energy goes to the part of the plant that's necessary, and allow Him to have his way with us. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Some interpreters, the moment they see that, uh, think that it's speaking of a loss of salvation. Uh, Right in the context in John chapter 10, he has made it clear that no, we are not lost. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. Notice that's a gift. And they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. No, it's not speaking of a loss of salvation. Others are saying, could it be a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, such as 1 Corinthians 3.15? It's true that there will be a loss of rewards at the judgment seat of Christ for those who are not pleasing to Him, but the judgment seat of Christ has not been brought up yet. It has not been taught yet. It's unlikely that that is what he's referring to. It's much more likely that he's speaking about the rejection of those who are rejecting Him. Take for example, teaching in Matthew 3, beginning with verse 7. This is John the Baptist receiving Pharisees and Sadducees, Matthew 3, 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He says to these hypocritical leaders of the nation. You may claim to be repentant, but there are no works demonstrating any true repentance. Your daddy and your mommy are snakes. You are not a follower of God. You are not pleasing to him. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. He's about to cut you down and throw you into the fire, and you sense from that that he's describing here a hypocrite like Judas, who though he walked with them for three years, though he was respected enough to be the one who cared for the purse in order to pay the needs of their group and to give some to the poor, this is a person who deserves uh, to be cast out withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned, which is what people who cultivate Grapes do. They cut off the dead wood and they gather together and they burn it. In contrast, he says to the other 11 disciples, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, for them, the teaching was oral. For us, the teaching is recorded right here in God's word and we have his Bible for us to study. If you abide in me, In my words abide in you. Now I'm going to add in here a parenthesis for context. Though you doubt you have the strength to do what I'm asking, parentheses, listen to what it now says, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. In other words, he's saying, As I'm controlling you, and as you're submitting to me, and as you're letting me have my way with you your desires, your needs can be laid before me in prayer and I will equip you to do what I'm asking you to do. So often we think, God's asking me to do something, I can't do it because I don't have the skill, I don't have the strength, I don't have the time, I don't have the ability. We give all kinds of excuses. What he actually wants us to do as we're abiding in him is to turn to him in prayer and lay before him what the need is. And he says, ask what you desire, it'll be done for you. God isn't trying to stop us from accomplishing his will. Exactly the opposite. God is trying to equip us to do his will. But he is allowing us, as those created in his image, with a will to choose, to choose him, and in dependence, ask him for what it is we need. He says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It's just the verb to be. So you will be my disciples. You could translate it. So you will become my disciples. You could translate it. So you would prove to be my disciples. But he's saying, my father will be glorified as you bear fruit. And people will see that this fruit is not human-like. This fruit is divine. This is something that only God could do. And they will give credit to God and glorify God as you're used in Him. Often we say to ourselves, I wish that I found the Christian life easier. And I wish that I found myself happier. And part of our frustration is that we're in a pruning process, not understanding the results of the pruning. He will bring us his joy, he says later in this passage. He will give us success in pleasing him. The part that depends on us is to not go independent, not go rogue, not walk away, not do this in our own strength, but in dependence upon Him, allowing His power to live within us and flow through us, doing it His way for His glory. He will give us successful fruit, and we will demonstrate ourselves as truly His disciples. Verse 9... As the Father loved me, just think of that, the Father's love for the Son, that is infinite love, that is eternal love, that is sacrificial love. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. The quality of love that the Father has for the Son is the quality of love that the Son is bestowing upon us. That's an amazing love. A sacrificial love, a sustaining love, an empowering love, then he says, abide in my love. That's interesting. If I want to feel the love of God in my life, how do I keep that flow going? How do I sense He loves me and feel His love? How do I Receive an empowerment to serve him past my own fears because of his love. He says, abide in my love. And I say, well, do I love you back? How how would I show my love back to you? Think of a person hugging you. And then think of yourself hugging back. My wife is from Latin America. She knows how to hug. I am of English and Germanic descent. I don't know how to hug. All her life, she's been trying to teach me how to hug properly. All right, so think of this spiritually now. He says, to feel the hug of God's love, I want you to abide in my love. Now what would that look like? How would I hug back? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments. You will abide in my love. Now, immediately we say, like, oh, that's restrictive. That's not necessarily what I want. And we're completely mistaken. What we want is joy. We want joy independent of circumstances. We want to be happy. We want to be at peace. We want to be filled with empowerment to carry out his will. Well, how would I do that? He says... It won't work if you're rogue, if you're independent, if you're doing this on your own. You have to abide in my love. The way you do that is remember what I've asked you to do. Now that's not that hard. As parents, we've had five kids and now we have five grandkids. It's really rather simple. We don't ask that much of our kids but what we ask of them to us is just so plain, so clear. If you wanna please us, We've explained to you how to please us. And so it's not that mysterious to us. Sometimes we pretend we're dumb. And I've had children who say, "Like I don't know, I don't know. And you just go like, you do too know. Don't start this I don't know stuff. You know how to please us. And similarly, we know how to respond to his love and loving him back. It's abiding his commandments, but it is not. And John says this in his first letter. His commandments are not burdensome. In this context, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It is a love relationship, and that's not burdensome. It's a reciprocal love going back and forth. Just as I've kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. So I abide in his love. I obey his commandments. And then thirdly, I enjoy him. That's what's beautiful about this relationship. It was never meant to cause us harm or discouragement or frustration. It was meant to produce the right kind of joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be made full. This joy is sustaining. This joy will take us through our difficult times. This joy will place our eyes in the right place and take our eyes off of our circumstances and allow us to be at peace even through difficult times. It's his joy implanted in us and then our joy will overflow. The obedience is out of love. The obedience brings joy. The reason why we're a little shy about the obedience part is we think like, I'm going to be disappointed. That's not what He's saying. He says, no, you won't be disappointed, you'll be joyful. This is exactly what you want. John 10.10, He came to give us abundant life. He came to give us a joyful life. And we say then, then why do I have so many trials? why am I persecuted for loving Jesus? Philippians 3.10 talks about a fellowship of His suffering, that they're rejecting Him, they're rejecting us. And as He has taught us through the story of Job, or taught us through the story of the thorn in the flesh with the Apostle Paul, through trials, we come to know Him and appreciate Him more deeply. Because it changes our focus. When we're going through trials, it takes our eyes off of the superfluous and focuses us on what's most important. With Job, he came to understand, you are my God. I am your creature. However you want it to go with me, I want to glorify you. And the Lord blessed him. There was a huge lesson that he would serve God expecting nothing in return. Most of us want to negotiate with God in advance and want to say, I'll serve you if. Now, he's a good God. He's a loving God. He's a blessing God. He brings us joy. But we want to negotiate a contract in advance and say, but I want to tell you what I want from you first. With Job, he learned the lesson. I will serve you for nothing. With the Apostle Paul, he learned, my strength is not my own, it's God's strength through me and His strength flowing through me will better show itself through my weakness. So when I am weak, then I am strong. And it's the flow of God's empowerment that took His eyes off His own personal abilities and through His own weakness was able to glorify God. It's an amazing concept of how he prunes us. And he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be made full. We should never interpret God's love by the way in which we observe our circumstances. Rather, we should interpret our circumstances by the way in which he loves us. One of the problems for us as a healthy church, a doctrinally correct church, is that we can get so focused on being correct that we lose our first love. The most theologically advanced church in the New Testament was the church at Ephesus. And yet when we read in Revelation 2 verse 4 that when Jesus wrote to them, He was saying, you have lost your first love. And so this is something that reproves us and causes us to say, that's the last thing I want to lose. I need to sense God's love for me, his provision for me, his protection of me, his power flowing through me. And I need to respond to his love and love him back. And in that way, I am a branch that remains in him A branch, though pruned, and pruned to bear more fruit, much fruit, and eventually a tremendous amount of fruit, as the passage goes on. Oh, brothers and sisters in Christ, may we understand some of these last words of our Lord Jesus Christ as he exhorts his disciples, abide in me and I in you. Shall we pray? Father, we come before you. Uh, This morning, uh, realizing that this changes how we think about things. Uh, So often we imagine the difficulties that we experience mean that we're perhaps out of touch with you or uh, not pleasing to you, uh, that in some way uh, you're disappointed in us. But we can see how uh, some of it could just be a pruning, a redirecting, a a a refocusing of how it is you want us to serve you and how it is you want us to depend upon you. And so, Father, I pray as we uh, reread this passage this afternoon, as we study this passage throughout the week, as we pray our way through this passage, that we allow it to reshape how we think of your work in us. Oh, Father, thank you for loving us through your Son. And Father, thank you for allowing us uh, to be forgiven and saved, now able to keep your commandments. And thank you so much for offering us the joy of your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you, that we can enjoy you and look forward to your son's return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.